Welcome everybody to another episode of Forging Brains Podcast. My name is Riley Kirkpatrick and I got my co-host here, Gavin Cooper. Today we got a cool guest. We got John McNerney with us. John is a farrier, a tool maker, and he was in the law enforcement world too for a while. Uh, so I'm pretty interested to get to pick John's brain a little bit and get to know him a little better. Thanks for joining us today, John. You bet, guys. I'm I'm excited to be here. I'd listen to your podcast. I love it. So this is so I was looking forward to this. It'd be fun. So otherwise known as man, UConn man, we Forge. Appreciate you tuning in. Yeah, yeah. I got the name, the nickname UConn, and then uh, it just stuck. So I just uh, kept that with the business. Where did you get the nickname UConn? Well, um, so I grew up in Fairbanks. My dad was in the Air Force, and we moved around a bunch, but. We ended up doing two tours in Fairbanks, Alaska, and basically from fourth grade through high school, uh, I basically grew up in Alaska. And then okay. uh, when I came down in uh, into lower 48, as you call it, and started my uh, shoeing career, I was working with Jim Quick. And uh, then in the springtime, I showed up to a shop and we were having like a a spring blizzard you know we get those uh, pretty you know late in the uh, or early in the spring and you'll get these nasty blizzards big whiteouts and stuff well okay. growing up in alaska i've driven in the snow it's not a big deal and i was hell-bent never to miss a day of work or miss an opportunity or anything like that so i showed up on this blizzard walked into a shop and Quick's got a, uh, a habit, you know, he gets up early, gets in the shop, and either makes tools or shoes or whatever, but he's in the shop, and you can always meet him in the shop in the morning. So I walked in, and Quick he looked up, looked a little bit surprised, and, and uh, he goes, all right, UConn, let's go. That <laughs> was it. I was UConn after that. So That's perfect. That's a good one. <laughs> right? <laughs> so. He he doesn't throw throw good names around too often, so that's a, that's a, that's a honor yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the time, I was in good graces, right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. So you you got you're in Colorado then now, huh? Yeah, yeah. So I went to horseshoe school in Colorado. Uh, met my wife in Colorado. Settled down here, and we've just made our life here. So did you have horses or anything when you were growing up in Alaska? Yeah, it's crazy, man. So when when we were in the Air Force, I really got into horses when I was in like third grade. I thought horses was the coolest thing. We were living in Virginia, and I got my first riding lessons and stuff in Virginia. And then when I was in Alaska, we still had horses and did our horse things. And, and then after I graduated, um, I grew up with horses, and I wanted to go work in the horse industry. So I went down and was a groom, rode horses, did things like that in the Washington area. And uh, okay, starved to death. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, I was trying to do the horse riding training thing and groom and everything that you could possibly do. And I watched these horseshoers come in, and they would chew a horse, get paid well, and they'd leave. And the hardest time they had with these horseshoers was getting them to show up, right? They're oh, busy. yeah. So I'm like, man, if you just showed up, you could probably be successful. So that's how I got into horseshoeing. <laughs> Do you remember what part so of Washington you... it was? Oh, yeah. So I lived in Gig Harbor, Tacoma, Concrete, all over Washington, just different places. Um, yes, yeah, so that's Harbor, close to right, right around I, where I'm at. I oh, really? Oh, yeah, okay, west side. Cool. Um, 
Yeah, what was that little little town by? I can't remember the little town, but it was it was this big race race barn. Um, just it's like under the shadow of um, Emerald Downs. What's no? I don't know if that's it, but um, I remember the gal that owned it. Her name was Gwen Blake. She was a big dressage rider or something. But they had a race race horse barn and stuff. But that wasn't in Gig Harbor. That was um, is it concrete? That's that's right underneath the mountain there. Um, I can't remember the town. It's a long time ago. God, that was back yeah. in '93, '94. Oh, I was just being yeah, born. Yeah, I, I was in Washington for quite a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was trying to make my way in life, type of thing. Yeah, well, that's cool. But yeah, I did that for a while, and then decided to go into horseshoeing school, and had an opportunity to go to Colorado, Fort Collins, and then I moved out to Colorado. And then there was a horseshoeing school at CSU, and I ended up going there. And that's how I got into the, uh, really got into horseshoeing. Is that like Colorado and had you done, State University? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Had you done any farrier work before that, or just saw the other farriers working? Well, so there was a dude um, that let me ride with him a couple of times and probably did two or three ride-alongs with him. I shod my first horse with him, and then and then we were like, all right, we're moving to Colorado, <laughs> and we just took off. <laughs> Got out of there. <laughs> Man. So you, so you went to school. How long was the program at school? So CSU had a one-year course. It was like they called it a short course, but it was 12 months. Um, Doug Butler had started it. And then um, he had left CSU, and they had uh, a gentleman by the name of um, Steve Moline, who was running okay. the, the school there. When I joined, there was uh, two or three other people, and then it was I, – I, I picked it because it was like a whole year. And yeah. I figured – and CSU had a ton of horses, so they had – broodmares they had a whole breeding thing going on they had sport horses they had polo team they had all kinds of western stuff going on they had the four sixes colts um and there was just a ton of horses and there was only i figured there was this instructor two other or three other students and myself and i figured i'll get under a lot of horses and so and just in my thought was probably a good idea to do that yeah Hold hold up real quick. Gavin, Thinking about yours is still, switching. Yeah, you're still just like all speckly and quite delayed. <laughs> like, I'm gonna switch my John's. Hotspot. John's is fast and mine seems okay up to beat. Yeah, Riley, you're pretty clear. You're, you're keeping along real good. Yeah, yours is good too. You can tell Gavin's just like a touch behind on the right on the deal. How is it now? We'll get it. Yeah, that's a little better. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah you're good now. Oh, okay. Now you're behind. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's always <laughs> hard. Golly. I hate it when shit like that happens. Are you are you hearing us, do you think, quick? Like it's not dropping you behind? Oh, no. I can hear you guys fine. It's just the visual, and which is it's no It's just problem. Gavin's. Gavin, you're hearing it? In real time now? Yep. Yeah, I can hear you guys perfectly fine. Yeah, cool. and you're not, you're answering us right away now. Way quicker than before. Sweet. All right, so you went to the, you went to school to the CSU, and they had a ton of horses. Like, 
was did that mean they put you guys under a bunch of these horses? Oh, yeah, Especially yeah, since there wasn't a lot of students. Yeah, and and like shortly after I I uh, jumped on, the other guys quit. Oh so, no way! Yeah, so it was it was me and the instructor for uh, I think it was three three to six months. I think yeah, it was six months. So it's just the two of wow. us. And I think they had they probably had two three hundred horses at CHU that we had <laughs> yeah, between two guys. And you guys like had like that was probably a part of the contract of the shoeing school being there is that they had to like work do the work on these horses, huh? Yep, that was part of it. it was, I mean, I, I felt bad for the instructor because they just used and abused the guy and barely paid him. But he, uh, it, it was that was part of it, and I was excited because I was like, I want to be under every horse. I, I didn't care how yeah. many horses we did or whatever. I was just I was hungry, you know, and so I, it was cool for me. Damn. Yeah, but for, for, for that guy too, he was like, "Did you ever feel like like the learning was taking second, like second string, and you guys were just like, it was work time, like it wasn't time to be, he didn't have a lot of time to teach you anything because he had to well, just be on it." Yeah, it was. I would say looking back on it, it was just, but it was hands on, right? And so yeah. the bookwork and stuff was a little lax at the first first part. But he did a really good job trying to fit that in, and he, he, I was hungry, so he told me, he's like, hey, do this homework and, and read these, and I would read it. I would just go home, and I would do my homework, and then I would come back, and we'd chew horses like crazy, and then I would do homework. And then after the six months, we had other students that came in, and so that slowed us down a little bit, and we were able to do a ton of book work. So then I had the six months afterward to be able to study and and you know pass the exams and stuff like that so it worked out really good i didn't say do you feel like that helped you because you had such a like you already had been around horses and everything but now you had like some working knowledge of the as a farrier right and that was it so like i had the you know how people get in that aren't horse people and they don't have any horsemanship and they get yeah. they, they get beat up bad oh like, yeah Nico, that was me at the beginning but i had i had the horsemanship <laughs> down or i had a good start anyway and then i was and then i had to figure out the feet right and so that yeah. was mm -hmm. that's really what i was focused on and so that was was really helpful so did it end Man, up being like that's, a two that's year so program? crazy they no it was it ended up it stayed one year for me and then um it it always i think it always was a one-year program which at the time and I I didn't know Walla Walla was I think I heard that was a two year program or something like that but CSU stayed the one year and it was just one year for me. Oh, okay. All right. Did you guys do a bunch of foraging throughout the program? Yeah. Yep. So that that's where I was really fortunate. So Steve was part of the RMFA and was was active in the RMFA. I think he had I don't know if he was ever the president but he had been part of the contest and he knew about the AFA and he pushed us, he pushed me straight into it. So I got to, I got to work with quick, like six months into school. I got put into the clinics right away and they said, Hey dude, the AFA is for you. You need to, you know, get certified. And in my mindset was, I'm going to be the best horseshoer I could be. So I was going to, my thought was like, all right, I'll go through school and then I'll go apprentice. And then I want to go do different 
you know, different places to go learn to be the best horseshoer. And when I learned that the AFA was open for me, man, I just jumped on it. That's cool. You had that oh, mindset yeah. from the and beginning. Now, yep. Yeah. Was that, is that a mindset you always had before or was it just like was shooing the first thing that lit that? Oh no, I'm, I'm so competitive. Like uh, if anything <laughs> I do, man, I'm like, I'm going to be the best I can be at whatever, you know, it's, it's like, it doesn't matter really what it is, but it, like when I decided I was going to be a horseshoer, I'm like, by golly, I'm going to be the best horseshoer and like whatever path I can do to do this. But when I was doing horses, I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be on the Olympics, you know, I'm going to do this. But so I, I just pick some, I'm like whatever I pick, I'm just competitive, right? I'm going to beat you, you know? Yeah. No, that's a, I think that's most of the people we end up talking to on here. That's why we end up talking <laughs> right, to yeah. it's, it's like like-minded people, you know, like, well, we right. just like to win a little bit or at least try our hardest <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to get there. Like, it's a, a good place to be. It's like, obviously, it worked to your advantage and people saw that in you, you know. Oh, that yeah, it was a huge advantage because I, I went from horseshoeing school to the certified test to going directly into contest um, competitions. I met up with people right away that were into learning and competing. Like, so I, I ended up riding with Jim Quick. I mean, like, that was right off the bat, and the guy was just a wealth of knowledge. Um, yeah. I went, the other guys around here were all super positive on learning and building, and it was just, that was the first door that opened up, and it was, I was lucky. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't know if it was lucky, right? Like it, like you were showing, you were showing initiative, so people were like, "Man, if you're trying, they're gonna try for you." And it's, I think that's a good like thing. It's like, it was probably easier for you to stay with your foot on the gas than to take a break after school or something. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it was just, it was just, it was cool because it was, it opened up uh, like school. You go through school, right, and then. You're like, all right, what's next? But this, I already had the next thing in front of me. I already knew Jim Quick, who was on the American Ferris team. And I already knew that there's a, a whole world out there. And yeah. I was like, I want to be a part of it. Yeah, that's like it. So did you take your certification, like try for your CF while you were in school or just shortly after? Like almost right at the end. Um, okay. So like a couple months, I took my CF. I almost got it. I had a couple things I had to uh, fix, and so I ended up going to Arizona. And then there was a test like a couple months after that, and I took my CF. So nice. At that time, I was already, I was already like, I want to be on the team. (laughs) Yeah. Had you had you done a competition by then? Yeah, not then. Oh, I might have. So Trey Green, um, he was in our area, and um, uh, good dude. Uh, he oh, yeah. he kind of he, he said, hey, why don't you come go to a competition with me? And then I rode with him a little bit and I shot because, you know, you come out of horseshoe school, you got like no no work, but you're hungry, you know. And oh, yeah. so oh, yeah. I'd ride with Quick or Trey Green or whoever would let me ride with them, you know. And, but Trey was really good. He took me to my first contest and in, in uh, uh, Castle Rock. I was in a novice class or whatever. So, So Trey used to be in Colorado then? Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. I think uh, he got he he went through like he got his journeyman out here. He was a big member of the RMFA. He was a big part of my life growing up and in horseshoeing. Um, yeah, he. I can't remember when he moved, but 
He had been here for quite a while. I thought he was always just a California guy. I guess I didn't know that about him. Oh, no. <laughs> but no. didn't he move He's back out there around. to uh, Colorado just recently? I I don't know if he he's I think he's still in Colorado now. Oh, yeah. he is. I think he's in California still. Oh, California. Yeah, he's in California. Yeah, he is. No, yeah. yeah oh, I think okay. he's in California. You can just tell how tough Trey is. There's no way he's born in California. That's where he's from. He's a tough man. <laughs> yeah, he's very tough. I mean, that guy. He can go through some pain. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Funny story. So I was young, out of horseshoeing school, and I'm like, I got some time. And I was like, you know what, Trey, I want to go do some bronc riding. And I was, I was too big for bulls, but I was like, I can do broncs. And I said, Trey, you, you did some cowboying. What do you think? And he's like, no. He's like, you're going to make <laughs> shoes, and you're going to go to horseshoeing school. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he just laid it out sounds for good. you. Sounds good. <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> just plot no that was true so he, he saved me from that oh, right, probably man. for the better <laughs> oh he's a great guy yeah do you, re- so. do you remember how you did at that first contest yeah I, I think i won the novice class and it was pretty basic and i worked my butt off on it you know i was like and trey was helping me so i had an i i i, I don't think there was there was maybe like maybe one or two and and then i i i, I if I remember, yeah, I think I did win it. It's been a while ago. That was back in '97 or '98. That's awesome. I I love going to like some of those like local contests, and you'll always see like not always, but usually you'll see one novice guy that's yeah. like fresh out of school and tuned yeah. up. Like he is oh, yeah. so ready to compete, you and it's just like. Yeah, it's, and he wins the whole thing, and you're like, man, like, oh, I wish there was some competition here for you so you could feel a little better, <laughs> but it right, still feels here. good. Like, Oh, I was a mess, dude. So, like, I was like, all right, I'm going to win this thing. I need to have everything together. I went and got every tool I, I, I think I could have. I didn't have any money, and so <laughs> I, you know, I was buying the wrong stuff, or I'd have stupid stuff. I remember Trey going, nope, can't use that. Nope, you can't use this. He's like, oh, they'll make fun of you with this, so don't take that. So <laughs> that just flat funny. out. That was great. <laughs> so that was a big help that oh, like yeah. you were it was really good. It was, like... Oh, shit, I'm still lagging real oh, bad. Oh, right off I? the get yeah, I, I was I was surrounded, yep. Yeah, you had you like literally like two very good competitors to line you out through the whole entire thing. Is like, oh yeah, man, what a great. blessing! Because there is yeah. all those guys that show up to the contest. Like what is it? Mike Poe calls them cat two rulers. You can always see them coming where they got that long unfoldable ruler from horseshoe and school <laughs> still. And you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah this no, guy, no. it's his first time. <laughs> like, his first time yeah. here. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> The, yeah, that was totally me. I even took an apron, like I like, you know, <laughs> yeah. those blacksmith aprons, and it wasn't. That's what Trey took from me. He's like, no, oh, you can't have that. That was probably a good call. <laughs> a good call. It was a really good call. Yeah. Man, I I even now like I only wear an apron in the shop if no one else is there and I'm grinding. Like I just exactly. like That's I don't exactly. want anybody to see me wearing this thing. I'm up baking a cake in here. <laughs> like, I'll burn my shirt up before I wear one of those. I know, man. I got one grinder that was like crazy. I want to take a moment to tell you guys about Wellshod, and not just that they carry every item you can think of from every brand, including. From the little guys, you can get some Adam Farr punches, some Ben Sneer hammers. They pretty much got it all in the hard-to-beat $10 shipping. But I also want to take a moment to talk about John himself. 
you see the well-shod name at pretty much every single contest that you go to. And not only that, you see John himself there supporting what we do and investing his time. Heck, John's even jumped in the competition in his ring himself at some of the WCB contests. That speaks huge to me. And it also speaks huge that John wanted to support what we're doing with the podcast. They've agreed that if you guys use brains at checkout, they're going to put a little mystery item in the box for you. So go ahead and support them, what they're doing, and it helps support us. Because in all, we're all just one community. Sparks, and I got an apron for that, but that's about it. They're, yeah, exactly. used to wear one. That's great. So how long was it before you got your journeyman? So journeyman took me a little bit longer. I was, I was bound and determined. So I knew I had to be a journeyman to be on the team. Um, yep. So I, I immediately started going to the journeyman. I was like, wow. Do I have to wait two years? And like, no, you could take the take it whenever. So I started going to the journeyman test before I was ready. You know, I, I remember that I think the first time I took the test, Pethic was the examiner, and uh, I like I burnt that toe clip probably an inch and a half into the toe, <laughs> like I, I, just to cover the heels. You know, I had no idea how to how to fit the foot. It was it was terrible. It, I wasn't ready, but it. it, it it took me a few more tries to, to get the journeyman. Yeah, but it was probably felt pretty good once you got it. You felt like you were like a little bit on your way to the to the goal, though, huh? Oh yeah, man, I was, I was, I was uh, full of, of piss and vinegar, and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be journeyman. I'm gonna make the team. I'm, gonna, I'm like, I'm gonna conquer the world, man. What, what would- on the journeyman test, like? Was it just the fitting that kind of screwed you up, or was any other parts kind of holding you back? Well, the whole thing. I mean, I I, okay. I really like the German test because you got to be ready for that, right? I mean, you got you got to be able to shoe a whole horse with with handmade shoes, and you got a time limit. It's a great test. Um, then the the written is a lot harder, and then you got to do the bar shoe, right? So you really do have to be prepared. I mean, it's it's a good standard. It's I mean, I know it's 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 kind of our standard. Um, growing up in the AFA and, and the industry right now. Um, and I, but I, I think it's a good basic standard. No, I agree. I think, I think it is a good basic. Yeah. I think, uh, Craig defines it, like puts it as like a driver's test. Yeah. You know, it is a very good, like driver's test for, for right. everybody. It is good. Yeah. Yeah. If you can pass that test, usually pretty good horseshoe to go out and actually run a bit and like not kill horses. Yeah. Know? Yeah, not put nails in blood. It'd be... Right, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, 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 you have to be able to – it's not just shoeing the horse. It's a test, right? And so it's yeah. a good standard test. And if you can, if you can take a, a test that somebody else has designed and you have enough skill to be able to obtain the points or the proficiency to pass that other standard, then you can do a whole lot of other things. No, I think that's, I, that's, I, I really do think that's like the best part of competition and the whole entire test is that it's like, it's the time that you have to do something that's not your idea and under a time limit. Cause oh, you yeah. put people on, you put both of those things, you put people under both of those things. That's when you see the weaknesses start to arise in oh, the situation, yep. you know, no, yeah, I think it, it is a very good test. Yeah. And I think it, it like Anything, this stuff is a perishable skill, and the more you work at it, the better you get. The more you lack at it, the more it goes away. So I think it's it's something you can you can spend your whole life working towards it, and you're never going to get perfect. 
um, but you can get closer and closer. And if you if you just just say I'm not going to do it anymore, and it's gonna it's gonna run from you. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Like, man, I feel it. If, even if I just take like a couple weeks off and you go back oh, yeah. to making shoes, you're like, wait, how was I doing this? Like, you're like, at one time I was making these, just not even thinking about nothing. Right, <laughs> it's yeah. just, like, you know, I got this down. I'll never forget this, and like, then you're screwed. You know, so. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> how so? Did, after you got your journeyman, did you most did you just focus on competitions at that point? Yeah, so obviously I wanted to build my business, and and then um, competitions was my focus, uh, and it's getting better. So I would I work with quick. Um, I worked with um, just everybody. So I go to the contest and I see who the studs were, and I was like, hey, can I come ride with you? And you know how it is. The guys that are are kicking butt, everybody asks them, hey, can I come ride with you, right? And so usually they just say yes, knowing that you're never going to call or whatever. But I was the guy that actually showed up. So I would, I would, I got the yes and I'm like, cool. And then I would, I would call them later and it's like, all right, when can I come? And I didn't have that big a business. And so it was, it was a good way for me to get to different shops, work with a lot of different people and just obtain a ton of knowledge really quickly. It sounds like there is a lot of handy people around in your area though, right? Oh yeah. The RMFA was great. So I had some really handy, handy people um, everybody was com- um, in the competitions. We had the, like the Four Corners competition, and then we had a uh, another competition in um, Castle Rock, I think it was. So we had two a year, and then there was usually two clinics. And then Quick usually had a clinic that we had at his, or he had at his place. And so there was a lot of people that were focused in on being better and doing a really good job. So Northern Colorado kind of got a reputation of, of guys that are doing, um, are trying to do really good work. No, that, that helps so much of like building yourself up and starting out in the area. But did you feel like it was a hard goal to attain a good business since there was so many handy guys in the area? Um, yeah, there's a lot of horses here though. So there's, I mean, I, you know, as a, as the, you get out of school, you just want to buy and get enough horses so you can buy bread. <laughs> and then, you know, right? And you, so you just try to get one horse out there next, and then you go through. It's just like every progression. I, I, I'm probably is the same way everywhere, you know. So you, you start going through all the nasty horses, and then you oh, get yeah. through the nasty horses and the nasty clients. And then you get through the, you start getting some better horses, but you got crazy clients. And then eventually you start getting one or two good clients and it starts just building from there, you know, but you it's almost like, it's almost worse though. Cause you like, you get that one or two good clients and you're like, ah, oh, those other ones really are bad. They <laughs> yeah, do suck. It's not me just thinking it. They do suck. <laughs> they don't all kick you, you know, or because you kind of convince yourself when you're doing crappy ones you're like all horses just stay in this bad maybe it's me like maybe and then like all of a sudden you do a couple good ones you're like oh okay oh yeah (laughs) 
so I, I had that perspective from um, 3D inventors and dressage people and stuff. I knew that there were people out there with money and horses that oh, stood. Yeah. <laughs> and then working with like Quick, you know, he's always Quick and those guys, they're always shooing the top horses. So I'm like, all right, that's the goal. They like, they're at, you know, these horses, big warm bloods, they stand. Uh, the people have money to pay you. And he's like, all right, so I need to be really good so I can, uh, so I can get those kind of clients. No, that is such a huge, that's pretty big of a help, like just to already know that that oh, yeah. exists. Absolutely it is, yeah. Because I had no idea. I grew up with like team roping horses and like I went and rode with a team roping guy after school. It was like, we laid one down maybe once a week. Like it was just a thing that you were doing. It was like, right, yeah. this is just the norm. Like this, this is what everyone's doing. Right, yeah, it's not normal. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Like I finally rode with one guy to a jumper bar and I was like, oh. That's okay. Right. <laughs> okay. There's more out here. <laughs> there is, man. So that's something, that's something I, I tell the guys that apprentice with me. I'm like, you want to get a worldly view of horseshoeing. And I don't, it doesn't really matter what trade it is. And obviously our world is horseshoeing, right? But you want a worldly view. There's more out there than what is in your backyard. And as soon as you can get that worldly view, man, you are going to be competitive. Because you have a knowledge that other people aren't willing to go get. And you don't have the knowledge to be able to do things that other people just can't do. And it opens up your, 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 it just opens up your world to see other things and go other places. And it becomes a lot more fun. Yeah. Just like, no, I think it makes sense. Like even past this, our horseshoeing, just your daily life. You see how that guy's in the other part of the world, other part of the country's running his life. And you think like, well, okay, that's a little more of a possibility to be like, or like, that's something I'm interested in and would like my life to kind of be pushed towards. It oh, is yeah. a... Tra travel is so huge and oh, so like did you travel mostly just in the u.s before or did you go overseas before you made the team no I, well not overseas i went to calgary um, okay i i at the time I, I didn't have the opportunity to do the culture exchange program and that that's probably my biggest regret and the one thing i didn't get to do um and i, I would wish i i did um and, but I was able, luckily I was able to go to Calgary and kind of see that. And I had a lot of things like going for me when it came to, you know, the guys that were around me, you know, because I was yeah. around quick and because I went to contest. So the four corners contest is a great, was a great contest because it brought everybody. It was a big yeah. contest. So I got to meet Jim Poor and Bill Poor and Todd Walker and Austin Edens and Craig and, you know, just just about everybody that was in the, the big in the industry came out there because it was such a cool contest. Yeah, that's that's cool having that right in your backyard. Have all those top names, especially at that time where everybody had to travel. Yeah, I've with heard, all their stuff. I've heard so, about that Four Corners before, and it sounds sounded like a pretty cool contest. It was. Yeah. It was cool. So it was at the fairgrounds there, and everybody went. And it was just, It was always in the hot part of the year, and so it was a good vacation to get away from that. And it drew, like, we had some really big um, judges there. I mean, we had all – we ended up getting all the big names to come and judge it because it, it was a cool draw. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Colorado in the mountains in the summertime, you know? Yeah, <laughs> no joke. 
not just scorch is way better than going to New Mexico, probably. <laughs> we love you, Craig. But <laughs> it's hot. It's it hot. <laughs> or Texas, for that matter, man. <laughs> it's just... Unless it's wintertime. And then Texas yeah. is a great idea. Oh, man. I don't. Those windstorms they get are pretty wicked. Like, they, they get scorching across there. It's oh, pretty sure wild. I remember waking up one morning at Poor's house and it's like half the water was out of his pool and the glass the glass patio table was shattered and like blown over. It's like I didn't know that was possible at all. <laughs> I had no idea that, that even happened. So I, I went to Jim's a bunch. So Jim was awesome because Jim will never tell oh, yeah. you no. Right? Like yeah. you say, hey, can I come down? And absolutely, he'll let you come down. And so I remember driving from Colorado to his place in my in my uh, single cab pickup truck on diesel. And back then, I think I remember it was like a dollar a gallon, right? And so we didn't and, nice. and like there was no radio and we didn't have cell phones. So I just had this like um, disc player, you know, the CD disc. And, oh, yeah. and when I left, I would drive all the way to Poor's and when he was in Midland and I'd work with him there and then I would drive all the way back um, and then try to shoot my horses and stuff. But it was, it was crazy driving all the way down there, but you, we didn't have really any other way to get like information unless you actually went to the, their shop and worked with them and I always just went, worked my butt off, try to shoe as many horses as I could for them, try to be a help for them. And it really paid off. I mean, that, that, I was able to see so many different things. So it worked. That was a good strategy. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a second to tell you about Barrier Box. First of all, we owe Barrier Box a huge thank you for being one of the first ones to jump on and support what we're doing here with the podcast. If you haven't heard about Barrier Box, it's a bi-monthly box that comes to your door. And it's filled with goods, kind of like the Chewy Box of your dogs, but this one's not filled with crap. She gets advice from the top guys of the industry and puts together a box with a theme. They aren't just a bunch of random items. They always have something where like some pieces of bar stock to practice for an upcoming contest with the punch or the fuller that you can use and fits that shoe. It's a great deal. She also throws in items that you wouldn't think of like good soaps, things to take care of yourself, make your truck smell good. Get on Barrier Box and use code BRAINS to check out, and you're going to get 25% off your first box. Thanks, everyone. That is it. So, like, did you just already know at that time, like, I need to put this in my schedule to travel to these other guys' house? Yeah. Yeah, I knew if I was going to be if – if you're going to be – if you want to be the top of whatever industry you got, you got to run with the guys that are at the top. You know, because yeah. that's the only way to know. Right. So, and it, at the time there, that was Jim Quick. It was, it was Jim Poor. It was Craig. It was Mark Milster. Um, it was Jason Smith. Um, so those, you know, those guys were really the the top. Uh, uh, you know, and so you you had to you had to go hang out with them. You got to figure out what they know if you want to run with them. Yeah, you must have been. Yeah, a, uh... get all those little tips and tricks you must have been like a pretty likable person for all them people to like continually like be okay with having me around. Like there's a lot of people that say, <laughs> right, I've, yeah. tr- I've tried getting in with them and like, they just almost pushed me away or whatever. So it's almost like a matter of an attitude thing, like getting around kind of people like that all the time. And, you know, 
I think you just, you just got to keep trying. <laughs> I think <laughs> at, at some point, you know, they're just like, all right, I'll just say yes. And this guy will leave me alone, you know? <laughs> But you worked yeah, on I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I bet word got out that you were a hard worker and that you weren't weird, you know, that you weren't, you weren't doing anything creepy when you were at these people's houses. Right, yeah. I think because especially like, then, it's like you, it's not like they could check out your Facebook before they agreed to having <laughs> you over, you know? It's like they were just met you at a contest or something. Like, Yeah, yeah and it was a small world, right? You know, like if you went yeah. to, you know, I was working for Jim Quick, so... Like Jim Poor, I'm sure he called quick and said, hey, is this guy okay, you know, or, you know, Craig or whatever. So yeah, I think that's a safe one to bet. If quick just lets you be around, you're an okay guy. Yeah. <laughs> he probably didn't need to look into it at all. He's like, okay, quick lets you hang out. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah. It'll be good. So me, so me and Quick definitely have like this love hate relationship. So <laughs> join <laughs> the club. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it's what you call like the complicated relationship thing. But yeah, I grew up with him and, and I owe all the world to him. He taught me how to be a horseshoer and, and to forge and make tools and stuff like that. So so it's uh, he definitely, if it wasn't for quick, there was no way I would have made the team. Uh, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have the worldview that I had going into it. So I owe a lot to that dude. Oh, I'm I'm right there with you. I I love to kind of like shoot shoot shots across the bow at quick, but he loves doing them back. Like so that's that's it. It's I have no hate for the guy. I, I really do like him, and he's taught me a ton. Like oh, every, he yeah, is super super handy. Like yeah, and he's a good storyteller. That guy is crazy oh. good, crazy good storyteller. It's, it, you hang out with him for like just a little bit and you're like, I just want to know my history as good as he knows his history to tell, to be able to tell it. Like it's such a good, he knows the history of there. He lives in his family of horseshoeing of the tools. It's just like, he knows all the history and it's like, just shows how much he cares about it all. And it's like, I, I hope one day I could relay the, how much I care about something as good as he can relay how much he cares about something. Yeah, absolutely. And the guy has a has a talent for uh, storytelling that's that I don't I, I wish I had because like the only the only other guy that I know that could probably be quick in storytelling is Jim Poor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're two different routes of the story yep. being told. <laughs> that's two. Di- yeah. It's two different deliveries. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So, what year was it that you first made the the AFA team? Uh, so I think that was 2001. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 2001. I ended up, I think I made the, like the alternate and then, nice. uh, you know, made the team team the year. Well, you're on, you're, you're on the team as the alternate, but you know, yeah. actually compete the four guys the, the year after that. So. How because many? even then you could, the alternate still competed at Stonely, correct? Yeah. Yeah. You get to do the individual. Um, the only thing you don't do is the uh, team chewing. Yeah. How many years did you have to try before you actually made it on to the American Farriers team? Uh, so it was pretty quick for me. So I think it was – so 97 I went to horseshoe in school, and I think it was 2001 I was, I was the alternate. So I was I, – dude, I was laser-focused, right? So yeah. I was – you know, I could go to the convention, you get your butt kicked, and then you just keep trying – and I was focused in on it and, and ended up 
working out. And at that time, when I made the team, that's when uh, Craig and Quick and Mark and Shane were, were stepping down. So there were spots that were open. Uh, who were your teammates that first year that you made it then? Um, so I know it was Austin, um, Bill Poor, um, gosh, and then Austin uh, just told us too. He did. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I, I listened to Austin. <laughs> he did. <laughs> but, he just told us. Yeah. So it was. Uh, gosh, it was, it was Troy Price was one of them, and then I can't remember who else it was. That's right. Because one, because Todd went to the Culture Exchange program. And so our part of our deal was to pick up Todd or rescue Toad. (laughs) You must not have had uh, very many distractions in your life from the time that you got out of horseshoe in school to the time that you made the AFA team then, huh? No, I was was laser focused, man. It was, I'm going to go to every competition. I want to be the best I can be. And I was, I was focused and that's all. I just, I shot horses to buy coke and gas and steel and and uh and tools or whatever i needed to do yeah it was it was definitely a focus so working with quick did were you already making a bunch of your own tools um so yeah so so i couldn't afford to buy tools so i started making yeah. tools like yeah. i couldn't buy a fuller and um well, that's how I that's how i started making them as like oh, really? man, i, I want to compete but i can't buy any tools it's like and you need so many of them that's exactly yeah. what happened so yeah because i was like i can't buy tongs i can't afford tongs i'll just start making them and that's yeah that's exactly how i got into making tools yeah that's that's awesome it's like a, a necessity you know it's usually that's when the tool ends up a little bit better i think is like you actually have to use them so you're right. like well th- this sucked i'm not gonna build them yeah. like that again i'm gonna, I'm gonna do something different yeah. next time yeah oh man my first tools were so bad and then i had the problem of seeing quick's tools so i, <laughs> yeah. I could judge my tools on the his and i was like god they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> terrible so and he would take pity on me and he'd be like hey dude you need a fuller here's a fuller or he'd give me a pair of tongs or he took care of me you know so <laughs> He just—he just, he just man, was—he was trying to save himself. He knew he was going to have to stand there while you were practicing. He didn't want <laughs> the steel flying well, yeah. out of there, or the well, fuller absolutely. breaking and flying out. <laughs> yeah, there's—I remember many a times him giving me or, or talking to me or helping me, and he was like, "This is for my preservation, not yours." <laughs> oh yeah, it was—it was rough, man. It was really rough, and, I, and you know how if you're really, really eager. And you're just like, oh, I'm gonna do this, and you just you're going 100 miles an hour, and just not even thinking, right? And you're like, if I if I bend more steel, I'll get better. Like that's not the way it works. But that's when you start out, and you have to put the brakes on just a little bit, and, and you gotta you gotta use your head. This commercial and podcast is brought to you by the World Championship Blacksmiths. We're so excited to have the Trinka family support what we're doing here. It is a huge part of the topics that we have on this podcast. And it's where we've gained a lot of community at and exactly what they are. They are a community that supports education through competition. So if you were looking for a support system behind you on your journey of becoming a better farrier, go join up and go to an event. You will never regret it. And they've been nice enough to offer us a 10% off on their online store or call in orders for everything besides competitions and membership. So go ahead them up, get some merch and let some people know what you support. Thank you guys. Yeah, you do. But it's like 
but do you also think that some good things happen in that tired time? Like where oh, you're real worn down? Like you, you, I think there's a lesson in that by itself, huh? There is. And I remember, so Grant Moon, I remember a long time ago when I was at Calgary, he was teaching, uh, he's doing a clinic or something, and he, and he said, he said, listen, at the end of the day, you need to be really worried that the only thing that you did was make your arm sore. And that, and that stuck with me. And wow. he's like, well, how do you, like, I can't just be breaking my elbow. I've got to be getting better somehow. And so that was a really good, like, especially in the time of my career when I was trying to go 100 miles an hour. And it's like, I could, I could make 100 nasty shoes, and I'm going to be really good at making nasty shoes. So you need to use your head. Because, you know, the whole, the whole saying, practice makes perfect. That's not true. Practice makes permanent. Correct practice makes perfect. And so you, you, had, you have to use your brain. And that was a big uh, turning point in my learning is that it was like, I can't just make a bunch of shoes. I got I to gotta, I gotta actually make something that works. And I got to learn, right? Because the only way I'm going to make the team if I learn fast. And how do you learn fast? Well, you got to learn smart. No, I, that's great advice. That's great advice. So how, yeah. how did you restructure your practices after that point? So I didn't, I tried, what I tried not to do was if I didn't like it, I, I didn't try to just keep trying to fix it, right? So if there was a problem that I couldn't solve, then I had to stop and figure out that problem, right? So you, so example, you're making a heel cock, so, and you've got a shunt, right? And it's got a nasty shunt. Well, how, how, how in the world do, do I make 50, 50, 60 of these things and hoping that one doesn't have a shunt? Or do I understand the principle of why that shunt is happening? So that if I understand that principle, I never have that happen again. Bingo. That is so big, I think. Yep. I think that is. The basics. The basics and principles. Everything is wrapped around principles. There's principles in whatever you do. You like it or not, there's principles behind things. Gravity was always going to work, right? The fire will get things hot. So there's, there's basics there. And if you can wrap your head around the basics and you stick to principles it's amazing how everything falls into that man no i think that's something that's huge right there is that people don't know how the you see it a lot they they know like they they know the steps for this shoe or they know the steps for this and this has been like a a demo topic i've been trying to like figure out in my head to actually communicate the way i'm thinking it is like people don't understand the basics of forging sometimes they just know how to make this shoe and but, but they like so then when they get a new shoe or something they're like oh well, i don't understand how to make that one it's like well it's just this move this move and this move you already know how to do these moves and the basics of it and like like you're saying like the principles of how steel moves in general mm-hmm. and how yeah. things get screwed up Right. Absolutely. So the prince, So if you understand the basics of horseshoeing and you understand the basics of forging and then you understand the basics of a horseshoe, then like, all right, then the heel cock, the wedge, the toe bar, the whatever you want to say is just that extra part that you can put on to the basics. So it's building blocks, right? So you just you can build upon it. But if you don't have those basics, if you don't understand that, 
like building heelcock is more important to grow the steel on the sides than it is the top and that's why all your heelcocks are getting shunts or you don't understand how things bump you don't understand the the simple basics and you struggle with that then you can't every it's, it's hard to get past that but if you understand those basics then man you can move right away you can get that done and move to the next part a lot quicker all right, we're going to go down a rabbit hole here a little bit. So it's like, what is your, like, I think this would be good. What to you, like, we'll just go through a plain stamp shoe. What to you is the basics of a bump? You did good. I tried to lead you down that. I wanted that question. <laughs> cool. So basics. So what are basics? And, and I get frustrated when people, like, the basics aren't the same. The basics should be the same, right? So I come down from the school of, of, of Jim Quick and Shane Carter and like what are the basics well is it flat is the horseshoe flat that is very basic and that is a principle through all horseshoes is it flat or is it not right does it have sole pressure does it have sole pressure or doesn't have sole pressure do the nails fit right and you're asking for an E6 nail does the nail go in does it wallow does it fall out right do you have the basic elements of that shoe? Does it have a heel cock? Does it have a wedge? Does it have clips? What are the basic elements, right? So basic elements, is it flat? Is it sole pressure? And then you can get into, uh, is it a section? Is it a section for that foot? Is the, is the stock too big for that animal? And then you can get into, like, how does it fit? Is it a hunter shoe? Is it a pleasure fit? Is it a roadster fit? And you can go down that. So I start, I always start with the very basics. And we start building upon that. And, it, you know, it's, it's, and I think that's simple basics. And then we can get into any, all kinds of rabbit holes down, down the line from there. But you've got to have some kind of standard. What are basics? And I'm talking basic basics. What's more basic than just a flat shoot, right? You can make any plain stamp yep. shoot all the way to... The big giant roadsters, you can make them flat, right? That can be a basic. Do you have nails that fit? Do you have nails that are coarse? Are, are they too fine? Are they wolfy? You know, those are they're simple. Is it a real horseshoe? Is it not a real horseshoe? You know, and then then that's, a, that's all before I get into, like, sections. Is it forged properly? Is it smooth? You know, that type of thing. No, I, it's, it's, you see it too at contests, you see shoes, like, especially in like, say the intermediate division, you, you see it in the open too somewhat, but it's like the intermediate division, you see them a lot where like the shoe that wins the intermediate division sometimes is not like the best looking shoe at first glance. Right. But when you start breaking it down, like you're saying, is it flat? Is it a size? And do the nails fit and are the nails yes. in the right spot? That is like. That's what that's what goes on a horse. Shane told me that years ago and continues to tell me that. Um, he's like, man, it, it, are the basics there? And then is it a section? You know, is it simple basics? And it makes judging, I think it makes judging pretty easy. So I, like at the convention last year, I told the guys, hey, this is a horseshoeing contest, not an interpretive blacksmithing contest. Right? So yeah. Does the does it fit on? Is it going to fit on a horse? Is it safe for the horse? And then you can build from there. So, but but then like it takes a little bit. Like 
I agree completely in the horseshoeing classes, right? In the horseshoeing classes, that is a horseshoeing class. And say the forging classes, at this point, there's no, like I, I agree, there's not, it's not an interpretive blacksmithing class, but it is a blacksmithing class to a point. And it is well, like, yeah, we're, it's, a, it's a forging yes. class. There's no horse involved right now. The only thing is like, it's a specimen class. You just have to mm -hmm. match that specimen that's key but it, you get these hard decisions sometimes like okay you're judging and say this shoe is a little on flat one shoe is but you're like i could fix like it could be fixed so easy yeah, but no, this I, shoe I, yep. this shoe no, over hear, here has a cold shut yes right no i hear what you're saying so like, i can't fix through. the cold shut Yes, if, if we've got a shoe that's safe and it's a horseshoe and it's got all the elements and stuff like that, and then you kind of go to, I always go to what, like if I got shoes that are getting close, then I'm saying, all right, what shoe takes less work to make perfect? Yeah. Right, so if it's a little unflat, and but the heel cocks and everything is perfect, and then the other shoe is real flat, but there's cold shunts and stuff into it, you're absolutely right. It only takes a couple of wax to make that shoe flat, and absolutely, that's the winner. So, no, yep, you're right. you are right about that too. But I, I don't know if I'm right, man. These are the dilemmas I have in my head when I'm looking at things. I'm like, no, no, think, what I would I do here? Right. <laughs> no, I, I I've argued that quite a bit. So we've had like so I think what when you get so we've we in our local contest we always had guys that would that would do well in the local contest and we had local judges, but they would go to the convention or they would go to Calgary and they would get killed and they would focus on like maybe whatever the monthly gripe was about our forging. Right. Yeah. So like you guys never make the shoe flat or you guys, your heel cock is, it has to be like square with travel or something like that. And so they would focus on that and then we'd go to Calgary or convention, they'd get killed. Right, and so I think it, it's you. You, you got to you, you get it, obviously it's the totality of, of what you got. So it's like, is does it have the basics? Is it a well forged shoe? Is it? And, and so you want to build on that to make the the winning shoe. I always when yeah. I competed, I always tried to make the judge uncomfortable giving me second place or third place or fourth place. So if yeah, you, you don't want to leave it up to them. Right, exactly. You don't want to leave it up to him because then, then you, then you like rolling the dice on that stuff. No, I, I'm glad you you brought that point up because I was thinking about it. Duvalier's hands, like, don't get to judging your own. Like the people listening, don't get to judging your own shoes outweighing the shop of like, oh well, which one could win? Which one? Like, no, leave that out of your head. If it has a discrepancy, like John was saying earlier, get. Figure out why that discrepancy is there and why it's happening to you, and cut that out of the system. That needs to go because yeah. yeah, you, you don't to. you don't want to have to like like oh well if it came up to the judge and the other guy well you aren't up against the other guy that day you're up against yourself and you just got to do like make sure you have the basics and all the little extras. That's how you get oh, in yeah. there. Yeah, that's a good point. You're always competing against yourself. I mean, you have, you have your competitors and you have your buddies, but it, you always are competing against yourself. It's it's you, the fire, and the steel, and what you can do under the pressure on that. And that's I've always found that the winning comes from the homework that you do at home, and then how you solve the problems that happen to you on the day. Yeah, that is huge. <laughs> like 
It's always, it's funny because like you never like I don't I don't have any contests that I in my head that I've lost or anything and it's like been plenty of them where I'm like oh well this guy just made a really nice one that day I always remember I was like like even years ago it's like oh yeah I screwed up this point <laughs> like this is where it all yeah. went wrong I did this to myself like yeah yep I'm like oh, I went like, south yep absolutely you go south and you uh, donated your entry fees. Yeah, man. So you were on the team four times, correctly? Correct. Yeah, I think it was either three or four times. I'm getting old. I'm forgetting, but I was, I was, I, I think it was definitely three times because I remember the last time Austin, um, Austin was done. That's when he, when well, that that's that second time. I think that's when we broke his back. We're making the oh, big geez. giant shoes. So we, they, they came out with these giant, stupid giant shoes that were like one inch square is what you started with. And they were Jesus. all huge and we all killed ourselves trying to make these damn things. And I remember just, oh, it was terrible. The only one that could make them was Bill Poor. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. It's not a surprise. <laughs> yeah, that dude is so strong. He was amazing. Yeah. How, so strong. He was the best partner you could ever have. In a oh, two-man competition. <laughs> yeah, because that's uh, I think maybe that's where Mark got the idea from. Because Mark Milster had that for like these last couple of contests. He's had some of these shoes that are from one-inch square that are just these oh, huge really? freaking draft shoes that are like, yeah, like draft rocker bars and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, that's that's intense. Like or Heinz like Spavins <laughs> out of yeah. it. It's just painful thinking about it. Yeah, they're those just big giant shoes. They're good two man shoes in Coke, right? You know, so but if you have to try to make them in gas or something, good help, help you. They're terrible. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so even though like we have a trade that you never really hit the top of, you know, or like perfect, did you feel like some like a? You feel a little relaxed after you made the team a few times. Like there was like. Were you ever like, what's the goal now? Yeah, so no, I always had the goal. So I, you know, you want to make the team. Um, you know that we once you made the team, you're like, all right, well, we want to, we want to win Calgary. Um, I want to win the world championship. Um, you know, and and, it, and so I felt like like I wanted to be on the team for ten years. I wanted to win Calgary. I you know I wanted to do all these different things. I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to go to Scotland. So I had all these goals, and I knew the team, and it was cool because so Quick was a uh, was really good at kind of opening up my eyes a little bit before I made the team and saying, "Hey, man, that you know making the team is like going to college," and he's like. Once you make the team, that's when the real learning starts. So don't go in the team thinking you're big, bad, you've got everything figured out. And he's like, but when you make the team, if you go in with the right attitude, you can learn a lot. So that was like, that was like my college. That's a good one. And so what, what did you do after, after that then? Let's say your, your, what did that be? Your doctorate? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. So. I, I would guess, so for me, it was like, I, I wanted to learn as much as I could, could being on the team. And of course, the first year, you're, 
you know, you're just kind of like starstruck. You made the team. You feel like a superhero. You know, you're doing that. And then you go to your first practice and you find out that you suck. And <laughs> yeah. it's going to take a yeah. lot to learn how to work with guys and to get better. So it was it was pretty eye-opening and how bad I really was um, and how much I had to learn. And so luckily uh, with quick you know, and the guys really kind of showed me or told me ahead of time that you, this is time, this is an opportunity to learn. And I just try to embrace that. And did you like, how did it feel going to Stonely your first time compared to the last time you went? Oh, it was always magical. So it, <laughs> it was always super cool to be able to go to, go to Stonely. And so we, we did the whole, went to Scotland and competed in the Scotland contest. And so, of course, that was that was after the Edward Barton thing. So, and we ended up, it was at a different spot, but it's still really cool. And then, yeah. uh, we, you know, you, the whole team would rent this little minivan. And we uh, we looked like, God, we looked. So we were the biggest rednecks showing up in England. And we, yeah. we tied, we literally tied our toolboxes on top of the minivan. And somebody had the bright idea of bringing a vice, those big uh, valley vices. And we tied oh, that wow. on top of the minivan, too. <laughs> so we were the clampets running around England. It was pretty funny. That is great. Top of the line for uh, back then, those valley vices. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're terrible. But they were better than yeah. what they had. Like, yeah. uh, that was an upgrade from what they had and like, they didn't even have their anvils tied down to the anvil stand and we're like oh, yeah. are you kidding me like we're <laughs> in, we're at the scotland contest and we're at this like museum type place and they got all these beautiful horses and these guys are phenomenal craftsmen like i mean that's an understatement and the freaking anvil's not tied to the base. Are you kidding me? It's like, so we were like, oh, we're going to bring our own tools. We're going to bring whatever we need to do because we're going to get that edge, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you see, you see old pictures of guys like holding the heel down and stuff oh, yeah, while someone's yeah. going at the horn. It's like, <laughs> right? but if you know when someone's doing that, it's not a great time <laughs> at all. So the the Scott the Scott the Scottish contest, it was so bad that the anvils had a big swoop in them. So I've heard that they would if they dinked them up, somebody came in with a grinder and and ground it down. So there was a big swoop. And if you didn't know better, and you were trying, so we had this bar shoe that we had to make. So you had to weld this big bar shoe. And if you didn't know better. When you flipped it over, you'd break your, if you're on that swoop, you'd end up breaking your weld because it wasn't completely welded. And so we figured it out really quickly and we just go to the corner and get it welded. Well, yep. the Canadian team was over there and they were having trouble with their welds. And so I ran over to them like, dude, it's breaking because of the swoop and the anvil <laughs> and it's hauled. And they were like, go away, kid. And they wouldn't. Yo, to no, they shit. never did get their bar shoe welded. <laughs> just from that <laughs> attitude. listen to the kid. Yeah. yeah, just from that attitude. That was, it, but I mean, and then you go, you go to Calgary, or you have your own contest, and your anvil's tied down, everything's perfect, and you're, you're using like the the best hammer you can get, and you got all this stuff, and and you suck. And you're like, how can they make such nice shoes? You yeah. <laughs> so you think there's something oh. to being said to being able to adapt to any situation versus just 
being oh, set yeah, in one sure. way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think some of those guys are so good, it doesn't matter what you give them. They're going to make whatever. It, it doesn't so, matter. Are we prima donnas in the uh, United States by having everything tied down? Or do we just have to loosen up a little bit? <laughs> I don't know, man. I think I think uh, I think at this point, at this point, like my it as much work as that that has gone into competing in the United States and what Craig has done and the contest that we've put. And my hopes is that our the bar is just raising like crazy. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think 100%. I think the bar is, keeps on going up. Yeah. Man, I know for me, it's like I got an anvil like that. That has a big old swoop in it that's unlevel <laughs> and it's all screwed up. So when I go to Craig's trailer, I'm like, oh, this is nice. This thing has corners. <laughs> right. like, this is flat. It's got corners and stuff. This is excellent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's always have, funny yeah. watching somebody center punch shoes on my anvil the first time. It goes jumping off the anvil because nothing's got a big old hole in it. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah that, just don't tell them. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I usually forget. I don't even know what's going on. No, so, right, because it works for you. Yeah, and I'm just like, I'm a lazy person, so I just deal with the screwed upness sometimes. Like, well, I got work to get done, so I don't, <laughs> right, yeah. I don't uh, take care uh, of the anvil. When, when did you make the move to law enforcement? Okay, so, um, so I was done competing – and um, so I'm like, I'm really goal driven. If I have a goal, I, I would go after it like crazy. And so, and I, I my goals were like, I want to make the team, I want to do Calgary, I want to do all this stuff. And then I kind of lost my goals, right? And so yeah. I made the team, um, the team's a grind. You know, competing is a grind. At the top level is a, is a I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I think we were gone at the time 20 six days between the convention was over to august 20 or no 50 sorry 56 days i was gone from home between that time between like yeah. february to august and i was trying to run a business i um i had a wife then we had a kid um and i was gone all the time and so i, I was like all right i gotta take a break from competing i gotta back off right and so i did that and then i started losing my goals and then once I started losing my goals, I kind of got frustrated with my clientele. I had the barns. I had all the rich clients. I had the big warm bloods and stuff like that. And I got tired of them because they, they had first world problems, right? Yeah. And I was tired, I was tired about their bitching about stupid things like their, their mocha latte was, wasn't, wasn't right or their, their whatever Mercedes Benz wasn't the warranty wasn't right or, you know, and, yeah. and I, I, I just wasn't in their world and I never was going to be in their world. And I didn't have that competition drive anymore. And so I was like, I want to, I want to go serve. And so I had this, I had this overwhelming desire to go serve and I was burnt out. I was frustrated. I was, I was just burnt out. And so I needed to change. And so like, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go. I had a guy that I was teaching how to shoot horses and he was um, law enforcement for about 10 years, and he was on the SWAT team. And he would tell me stories about uh, being on the SWAT team. And those guys had the same kind of, like, drive. And yeah. they were, you know, they were go-getters. And they, 
they weren't sloths and it was just a whole different world right and so they're going after bad guys and making a difference and serving and i was like you know what that's what's missing out of my life and i wanted to go do that i wanted to go serve and so i was like i'm gonna go do that so i went i decided to make the shift wow and what did you have to do to get on to get on the the force so I went through an academy that was 11 months, and then in Colorado, you have to be uh, certified. <laughs> so you got to go through some kind of school, and then you that that is, and then you go through a test that makes you certifiable. And then once you're certifiable, then you get hired. You got, I think you got about a year or so to get hired, and then you get hired, oh, yeah. um, and then you go through their in-house and you work for that agency for a year and then you become certified okay okay it is it's a very it's probably it was it was extremely tough to get on the force and extremely tough to get hired i was gonna say so like how many people are in the school like that first 11 months compared to how many of those get hired at the end yes so then it was really bad. So that was uh, like 2008 where we had the economy crash. And, um, well, it was a little bit after that. So it was like, so I went to school at uh, 2010, 2011, something like that. And there wasn't a whole lot of people getting hired. So a lot of agencies did a freeze. And so they were just kind of hiring who they had to. And so it was very competitive. So being competitive, I was like, all right, I'm going to be valedictorian. I'm going to have, I'm going to get a hundred percent on my test. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to, to be ahead shoulders. I think out of my graduating class, I, I probably like five or six people got hired and there was like 13 that was in the class, 13 or 14. So yeah. during, yeah, it's, it's tough. During all this, were you able to shoe any horses on the yeah. side or were you fully devoted to the process? No, I was full time horseshoer, part time going to, uh, you know, going to the academy or however you say. It. Did okay. you kind of feel like a shift in your mind, like when you were starting to strive for more goals or different goals? Did your attitude just become a little bit better because you were working towards oh, yeah. a goal and yeah. something else? As soon as I, as soon as I had a goal, man, I was like Mister Positive again, right? So, <laughs> like, yeah. I got a goal and I, I, I'm going to go attack the goal, right? So that's what it ended up. I, you know, it, I, I got out of my funk. I had, it was new, right? So I'm like, I think my, my probably my biggest um, fault is, uh, of course, I got a lot of faults, but probably my biggest is I'm ADD. <laughs> so yeah. uh, like, I, I was like, all right, this is something new. It's shiny. I'm going to go for that. It's exciting. I didn't, I didn't want to say it if you didn't know it, but I was like, man, you sound like me. You got some ADD, ADD going. <laughs> like, that, like, that's, that's, that is me, dude. So it's like, so at that same time, did you start dropping more and more horses? Cause you were like, I'm going this way. Yeah. So my, my, my plan was, is to keep one barn and then, cause it was all in one location and then, cause we couldn't make ends meet just being, just being a cop. So, uh, I don't know how my wife like agreed <laughs> to this, but so, I was going to keep one barn, which was the dumbest idea. Like, so you have one barn and like, you, if I get fired from that one barn, we're screwed. Right. Yeah. But uh-huh. for whatever reason, I was like, I'm just going to keep this barn and get rid of all the ones so I can just go on Tuesdays and chew here and it'll be fine. And, 
That was dumb. Because as soon as I got hired and became a cop, they fired me. <laughs> and I should have kept all the small backyard horses, but it didn't. Yeah. But I kept some. I, I did. I, I still kept shoeing some. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of horses. Um, and it was actually, it's probably in the end, um, uh, now, now that I look back at it, not shoeing a whole bunch at that time probably revitalized myself and saved my body and and uh it ended up being good for me i bet so were now it was like the pay low as a cop just because you weren't certified yet yeah so you come in most of the places will have like a pay uh, ladder so you come in at, at like basic pay and then every agency is different but then you get you stay in for four to ten years and then you become like master officer pay and then and then you uh, if you promote obviously there's more there's more money at the sergeant level and stuff like that i bet that was great for you though because you were able to like see a program and you're like i just have to achieve these things yeah and i'll yeah, get more was, pay yeah well yeah it, it, the the master officer thing was just like how much time you spend there yeah but i was i was more focused on i wanted to serve i wanted to go I wanted to go get bad guys, and I wanted to. I wanted to uh, take drugs off the street. I wanted to. I wanted. I help. I help people out, and because because again, I had seen so much first world problems. I wanted to see, and I wanted to help out um, people that really actually needed help. Yeah, and because you started getting into the dog side of it, didn't you? Yep, I sure did. So that actually worked out pretty well. So I was really into, I love getting drugs. I would get, you know, I would get bad guys. We'd go after the gangsters and we'd get the dope, we'd get the guns, and those guys are the predators, right? And so I wanted to be the predator of the predators. And so I did it um, without the dog for a while. I was a very proactive cop. Um, and then um, I noticed that the, the canine was the way to really really make a difference when it comes to getting drugs off the street because because um, we have the fourth amendment in the united states and what the fourth amendment does not cover is contraband and drugs is contraband and the dogs are have the ability to smell uh, the drugs out and then we train them to indicate to the odor of the drugs and once we got that and some other case law, we were able to use that to be able to search vehicles. So drug trafficking becomes a dangerous gig when you've got canine officers around. And it were, did you have a part of training the canines or was it mostly like just they came to you as like a started dog? No, well, you, you have to train them. So what, what ends up happening is um, you get selected as a canine handler and every handler is a trainer. There's just no two ways. You're around an animal. Yeah, like you still gotta horse, finish it off. Yeah, every horseshoer is a horse trainer. There's yep. no they, every he's like you train that horse to stand. You're also a psychologist, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> we'll, we'll, you you train the dogs. But what happens is you get the dog. It's got some training, and then you have to go to an academy, and you've got to train the dog and get certified to do the narcotics, and then you have to do the same thing for the bite work. Okay, yeah, that makes. I I know that my my neighbor does that same same thing. It's super interesting oh. to me, of like because fentanyl's new here. You know, it's like a, and it's new everywhere. But that is like so now we have he has been starting fentanyl dogs and getting yep. them finished off, and he does the scent side of it. So were you more on the scent side or were you on, more on the bite side? 
So we, we ran dual purpose dogs. So that means you, you got half of our job was dope and the other half was, uh, was bite. So, okay. so we would, we, we did the whole spectrum. So we did a bunch of narcotics. And so it was the, the major drugs like, like cocaine, uh, meth, heroin, and, um, acid. And then, and then fentanyl ended up coming in, but it was always mixed with meth or some other drugs. And so if you have a fentanyl guy, the dogs are going to usually hit on the, the car because they've got other, they got heroin or they got something else in there too. And they've started um, training the dogs on fentanyl now, but when I was there, it was fentanyl was so dangerous that we didn't we did not train the dogs to hit off of fentanyl but it, it wasn't it wasn't a problem because those guys you go to meth first or you go to heroin or you usually go to meth first or cocaine and then you end up heroin and then you go to fentanyl but then they started putting that fentanyl into the pills and they started these little blue pills that they would put on tinfoil and they'll burn that and then mm -hmm. uh, of course that's 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 getting real dangerous now but um, yeah. But yeah, so we did the scent work and then so we had to train four hours a week on the dope work and then we had to train four hours a week on the bike work. For the, and does that last throughout the dog's active duty that they have to keep doing the, that schedule? Yes. yes, you've got to keep training. Um, so every agency is different, but we ended up using a system from Utah and it's called Utah Post and they're, they're, it's an international program. and. Luckily, through my whole horseshoeing world, that I understood the um, the benefits of a difficult program or a a international program that has uh, bigger views. And Utah was luckily one of the programs that we just kind of like accidentally went to. Um, the handler that was there before me knew that Utah was was a good place to go, and then that's where we ended up going. But yeah, um, so we would train. You have to train. It's a perishable skill. And yep. you, there's a lot of litigation in courts when it comes to the canines. So just like if you're thinking like DUIs, the litigation is, is just as big with the dope stuff. Because if they can get you on training or if they can convince the court that the dog didn't indicate but you cued the dog or you didn't train the dog well enough on the bite work, you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble. Wow. That I is that. I have such a good point. Yeah. That like so they'll look back and be like, well, uh, Rocco missed his his scent training schedule last week. So Right. Yeah, that's he's probably a little off his game. Right. And that's what, that's how they go. And they and if you don't have your training records, then they can get that ten kilos. That guy that got caught with ten kilos, he goes back on the street, right? So wow. that that's a problem. Yeah. And I and it there's a little bit of validity to it, though, too, huh? Oh, yeah. Because I know if I don't run my dog for two weeks, let's say, he's probably going to run a deer or try, he wants to. Like, he, he wants to try, he wants to trash a little bit. And so, like, yeah. I, I could see that being, I didn't know that they had, like, that, and it was public, it must be public record then mm -hmm. of oh, their absolutely. schedule. Yeah, you you so w once you become a canine cop, man, I tell you the the amount of paperwork that goes into that is just astronomical. Cuz you cuz not only are you running the street, you've got to run the trainings really seriously. And every training that you do, you have to document everything about it. 
and it has to be an orderly setup and it has to be set where you because it's public record and you have whether to, it's good or bad for the me. dog exactly so you have to show them your warts as 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 well as you show them the the good work or defense attorneys like you can't show them a perfect record because there's no such thing as a perfect record so yeah. there's you you have to show everything you have to stay on top of it and it's always a litigation thing so it became we came really really good at being in court we were good at at talking in court we were really good at defending ourselves and then um, every canine officer you see that's been on the street for a couple of years they're all experts in court like literally been been set and recognized by the court as an expert that is Makes that's sense. awesome that is pretty cool i didn't know all that it's that and now since you're training this dog so much and you're with him so much is there ever times where you doubt him where you're like ah, training didn't go good the other day Yep. So th- there's an old saying in, in the canine is trust your dog. You've yep. got to trust your dog. So training is training and what happens on the street, how you got to trust it. Right. So if you have doubts in your dog on the street, the dog's going to show doubts. Right. So you've got to, you've got to, you've got to rely on your training, let the dog do the thing. And that's a big thing. That's a big fight. It's hard. Cause later I, I became the trainer of our unit. Cause me and Mr. Focused, I got it. I'm like, being a handler is not enough. I got to be the trainer. I've got to, I got to run the yeah. program or whatever. But uh, the guys would doubt themselves, and it, it, I said, I think he just sat for his toy, or he just sat because he 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 knew I wanted him to sit, or or or, or something. They would always, and they would feel bad because, or they'd get nervous because if it comes out in court that they that they it wasn't true, then um, they would get in trouble, and the guy would get released or whatever. So we had to really work on training and really convince the guys just trust your dog on the street just if he doesn't sit then he doesn't sit if he sits you trust him and you go on from there and we had a real serious program and we were really honest about what we did and most of the time uh we would either find drugs or reason for why the odor was in the car okay yeah did did you guys ever just have a cold dog that was just like no he's just not very good well, yeah, we had we had we had a few of those. So no dog is perfect, right? And so, yeah. but we usually wash them out in the training program. Okay. Um, and they would show, they would they would show that they're not going to be fit for the street. And then and yeah. then, you don't really really know until you actually get them to the street, and then you can identify it pretty quickly um, once they're on the street. And it's usually nerves, or the dog is lazy. Or he just wasn't meant to be a police dog or whatever. And there's and then you just lots more distractions out on the street versus just like in the training program as well. Like life is going on out there, right? There, There is, but we trained in a realistic scenario-based training program. So we tried to okay. make it as, as real as we possibly could. And mm-hmm. we would do mock stops on the street. We would do like, man, it just – because – if you had if you had something buttoned down that you thought was good, defense attorney would find a hole, and then you would you would button that down, and defense attorney would find a hole. So we were always thinking, and the training system that we used was always uh, ahead of that curve. So it was the the number one most recognized training system in the world. So. Man, and they like you'd have to have guys like yourself that were so driven to be correct because you're kind of always under the scrutiny of like some, for some reason they're trying to prove the good guys bad. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, and that gets to people. It gets to people. Yeah. Like they're tired of being called phonies and they're tired of being called, you know, you know, untruthful and stuff like that. And you really have to be, um, you have to, you have to go for it. And it, it's a government job, right? So you're not getting paid more for, for being really good at what you do. Um, but there's a, there's a lot riding on it. And so you gotta, you gotta find those guys that, that are, are into it, that want to make a difference, that are high drive type people. Oh, that is, so what, no, that's, I think all that stuff's awesome, man. Like that is such a, and I could see how your path led there, you know, that you were yeah, like, why you want that's to a, it's there. a cool goal. Yeah. It's a cool, like, and it's a cool new goal that you did serve your community and not yeah. even serve your community. Like, I think we become horseshoers for a reason of like, uh, I think you have the same mentality, me a little bit of like, there's gratification an animal can give you that no person could ever give you. Oh, like right, yeah. having a well-trained dog or having a, being able to help a horse or train a horse in a certain way is something that's like, nobody could ever say thank you in that way that the animal did. And so it was like, man, you probably got pretty good, like, you felt good about these dogs when you were done, like when you they were out there working and they're making a difference. I, I, I tried. I mean, that was my goal. I, I wanted to make a difference. So I really, so I, so I, I believe, um, drug, I know drugs are, are cities problems are our communities, big time problems. And I, listen, I'm not, I'm not for somebody that is caught with weed or even with meth that has to do um, prison time. I, I think that's, that's a complete waste of time. And I think there's, there's ways of, if you get caught with that stuff that maybe your punishment is rehab. And, and at the same token that we don't make drugs legal and we don't make, um, the people that are selling this stuff and the people that are making it are straight up predators. Oh yeah. They, they are stealing these people's souls, meth, heroin, Fentanyl will steal a person's soul, and they get yeah. so addicted to this stuff they cannot function in society. So why not go after the people that are selling this stuff harder than ever? And that's yeah. where mm-hmm. the dogs and stuff came in. And I like I'm not I'm not after the users. I'm after the people that are selling this crap because yep. the the crimes that are happening, all the theft crimes. I wouldn't say all of it, but I, a, a majority of theft crimes are for the users to get more drugs. Yeah. Yep. And if you got rid, if you made it harder to traffic drugs and you make it harder for them to get stuff, then you can make a difference on, on the crime and the community make it a better place. And that's kind of what that, that was my whole, my, like I wanted to serve. And so what was the best way to serve? Make community safer. Well, what's a good way to do that? We'll get rid of as much drugs and put violent criminals in a place that where they can't hurt people. Put them in jail. Yeah, and then it like canine was it was the way to do that. Makes your guys' jobs easier. Like if you get, don't have to focus so much on like all the petty stuff going into right. it, you can actually like put your resources into the, you know, the hardcore sellers or whatever dealers yeah it's, it, it's like, so everyone that gets into to um police work want to make a difference they want to go get bad guys right they don't they don't want to take the petty crap uh theft crime they don't want to take hey can you come and and tell my kid what to do they don't yeah, want to given seat belt tickets yeah, <laughs> yeah. or the 
hey, you guys need to go get uh, your quota tickets because we just need to tax people more. I mean, and there, there is just there's there's a ton of work in the cop world that's not cop related. Something I was kind of wondering is uh, frustrating. Were you were you on the force then when uh, marijuana became legal in Colorado? Yep. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So yeah, um, marrow like right at the time I became a uh, police officer, marijuana became came legal, and you weren't gonna you know get in trouble for having you know marijuana. Was that kind of weird? You know, I never. I don't think. Not really. I mean, I didn't. I never was against marijuana. I yeah. never. And as a cop, there's not too many people that have a drag out fight on people that are smoking weed. Like they're just like, <laughs> yeah. we're just chilling, right? You know. And so I was, I, I really wasn't like, like meth or marijuana wasn't my focus. But it, when it when it came to like meth and heroin and stuff like that, that's what I was like. That can make a difference, right? That is some bad stuff. This, yeah, will yeah. take your soul. <clears throat> oh man, it takes the whole city. Like Portland mm-hmm. is, uh, it's it's legal to use hardcore drugs in public. It's. Uh, it's there's no charges for it nothing and then like it, you can go ahead and steal up to like i think it's like fifteen hundred dollars worth of items yeah. as long as it's for you were gonna sell it to buy food or something like that and so it's like it's just those towns rampant and that's the towns rampant because of hardcore drugs like that's how it how it goes no it is and so did you ever feel frustrated like was there ever a turn i know this took a big turn but it's like is there ever a turn in the time where you were like, it doesn't matter if I arrest these guys because they don't do anything with him anyways. Yeah. So that's what's happened. Um, so, uh, two years ago when COVID happened, um, and when I think it was George, George, um, Floyd, when that happened, Colorado came around and made a bunch of laws that was one legalizing drugs, legalizing crime and making turning cops into bad guys. So the cops were the first, after this legislation was passed, the cops were the first ones when you made a complaint that, approved, that you had to prove yourself innocent. So the, the liability just went through the roof. And so every cop that was out there being a cop and trying to go after bad guys, all of a sudden the liability that went onto your shoulders just became insane. And, and, and that's not even talking about, like, dude, you've got a job where you put on a vault bulletproof vest and you put on a gun and you're told to go out and go to the nastiest parts of our community make split second decisions where you can end somebody's life or get yourself killed and here's 40 bucks an hour (laughs) and then they put the legislation on top of that it just became unbearable and so is that what kind of pushed you to start doing the tools so I, I'd been doing, I did the tools way before I was uh, a cop. So I had a whole tool business and stuff like that. Okay. I can go down that, that rabbit hole too. Yeah. But it's, uh, so I was doing, so that's probably my biggest nemesis is my ADD when it came to competing. Because I got to the point where it was like, oh, look, I can make these tongs like this. Or, oh, I want to make this fuller over here. Or... <laughs> I can make my Yukon Forge horseshoe and knives over here. And then, oh, oh yeah, right. You got to practice for your competition, right? <laughs> and so I was making tools as, 
and then it, it just it just builds right the tool making business if you if you start pushing it it's just a snowball so you start like you know it's just like any other business but at, or at there's a certain point where it will take it takes all your time just to get the orders done so you don't have any more time to practice or you don't have any more time to do anything like that so i, I was building it and building it and and i was going down to gym pours quite a bit and and we you know i I was I was looking at expanding, um, and then I did I did a mark. Um, so that's probably one of the big reasons why I ended up going to law enforcement, where I kind of lost my goals because I did a, a market analysis of horseshoe and tools because I was looking to invest into CNC machines and making my and buying a bigger shop and all this other stuff. And so I looked into like, well, how many horseshoes are there in the United States? How many horseshoes are there in Europe? And at the time I was selling to Crothers and I was selling, I had lots of stores carrying my, my uh, tools and things like that. And I was trying to push stuff into FPD and I was having conversations with those guys and stuff like that. And so I was like, all right, well, if I really want to get this ramped up, how much money do I need to invest in equipment? Um, and then how big of a market could I hope to get? What would that equal out? And it just didn't really equal out. Like there's not, it's, it's so like the market for horseshoeing tools, I mean, really is quite small. Like, I mean, yeah. and then even when you go to Europe and stuff like that, you have to like grab a big portion of that market to make it worth your while. Where like, if you would have, you know, I don't know if you picked, uh, like knife making <laughs> so like there's a that market is huge right so yep. you only have to grab a small portion of that market to be able to make a living on that so i got i got i kind of i got depressed because i was like well i put all this work and build up this thing and then the market the goal for that w isn't there and so and that was that was a fault in in my head and and i didn't i never got out of that fault which I don't, i'm not sure why i didn't but there's making horseshoeing tools and stuff is is a gateway you could i mean you build your business up in that there's other avenues you can go down i mean you can go yep. down to making custom blacksmithing parts so you can you know like jim poor did where he ended up making parts for the oil field or for other customers and stuff like that you just keep growing it and 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 i so i i kind of kicked my my i kicked my own butt and i didn't listen to the one of the things that I tried to always tell myself, especially when I was trying to make the team, to enjoy the journey and not focused on the end goal. And so I lost that for a little bit there. And, and I was like, wow, the end goal is not what I thought it would be. And instead of enjoying the journey, right, there's, there's, there's wins in everything that you can do. I and mean, like, it doesn't matter if you're starting out from to the very beginning, there's, there's, if you enjoy what you're doing, it's its own goal at the end, right? Yeah, you know, I, I lost that, and that was got that was one of the reasons why I kind of got out of tool making at that point. But maybe re-realizing re it is why I jumped back into it. I remember like back in like horseshoeing school, uh, Jake Engler came and did a demo for the class one day, and I remember he had a Yukon Forge hammer, and I remember like looking at it and had like claw marks going through it, and like picking it up thinking like that was like the coolest thing I ever seen, like a hammer with the claw mark in it and Yukon Forge <laughs> and Jake then this was like two thousand ten and he had said like this is the best hammer and he had a Yukon Forge fuller and then Jeff even had some there too and like they said like these are some of the best fullers ever and 
we just saw Jake a month or so ago. He judged a contest up here, and I remember seeing the same fuller that he had then, <laughs> and it was like almost whittled down to nothing. And he's like, this is the best fuller I've ever had. He's like, just puts a nice chop in there. He's like, I'll never get rid of that thing. And I still remember that, like, oh, seeing that first Yukon Forge hammer fuller. And it's something to be said. I mean, that Jake still loves using it over any other one. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, Jake was Jake was cool. So when those guys were coming on and stuff and, and then really getting really, like, pushing the envelope and stuff, and, and it was like a whole nother – um, group of talent that just coming in like Jake uh, oh my gosh Jake was just was amazing and and it was just taking off but yeah he had bought a few tools I remember that and that's when I was I was going crazy probably right before I actually went crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> before did yeah. you so when you like when you jump back into the tools did you jump back into it thinking like well I'm just ready to enjoy the journey now or did you yeah. jump back in it thinking the market was better no, I don't. I, I don't have any delusions that it's 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 any bigger or any better. But it's uh, I I kind of got back into just enjoy the journey. So it was I got back into I, I had enough of of it, well cop work just became way too much liability, right? So I, I wasn't willing to give my life to the city, um, and then they didn't have your back. I figured out really quick that they. It wasn't um, you're the next man up. So if you didn't if you didn't show up to work, they'd hire somebody else. If you if uh, there was a question somewhere in some in some, they were going to cover their butts before they ever covered yours. So yeah. I realized that, and I was like, you know what? It's not worth. It's just it's just not worth it. And like the they don't want you to be a cop. They don't want you to go get bad guys. They don't want you to go get the dope. They don't want you to do any of that stuff. They, they basically, they want you to um, not get them in trouble. And that's yeah. not why I became a cop. And luckily, I had a trade. And I was able to jump right back into it, which was which is really good. So I feel bad for guys that feel like they're stuck. Um, I feel bad uh, that guys that don't have another trade, another option, they're like, well, I, there's nothing else I can do. And it, that in itself is a lie. I mean, and, and there is uh, there is an issue with law enforcement um, with suicide. Uh, you know, we had we had uh, a, a gal at our PD that committed suicide right before I was. Um, uh, I think either I was right on the street or right after it. But it's it's a real issue, and I think I think um, the mental health for cops is 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 insane. I mean, like. You, you, this the stuff that you see and you do I, is stuff that I'll never shake. Um, I had I stuff bet. happen to me that that I will never forget and will, has changed me indefinitely. Um, and these guys, if you can't get if you can't get out of that, and if you feel if you lose it, um, you lose your drive for it, and it becomes a big mental health issue. I could <clears throat> I could see that I could see that being especially once you don't have the gratification there anymore right. from the outside people or from your higher ups. And you're feeling like, well, I'm just <clears throat> doing this for nothing at this point. Right. I, I don't want to make you relive any of those bad times, but do you have a, a good moment in there that you were like super proud of your dogs and super proud of something that you're like, 
Oh, oh yeah. that was a hard one to figure out, and we did it. Like we. Oh yeah, we. we so won. I tell I'll tell you what is the most addictive thing is tracking a human being. So <laughs> I can I, I can imagine, man. <laughs> like I like we'll tracking animals. I can think is like the only step from here is is people. <laughs> yeah, dude, it, it is the most addictive thing in the world. So we trained our. So I went to school, and they're like, "Hey, you can use these dogs to track people." I'm like, "I'm in." So yeah. <laughs> we started focusing and it's, it's a tough thing to do because especially in urban environments, there's all kinds of different odors and stuff, but done right. You can, you can track, you can track people. And so we, we had, I've had several times where we've, we've tracked guys that there's no way that you were going to find them and we were able to catch them and get them like really dangerous human beings that need to be in, in, into jail. And so that was, that was a lot of fun. And then teaching guys how to do the same thing and they tracked people down and got people that was really really um gratifying um i let's see one of our big dope cases we took off like i think it was like 12 pounds or no it was more than that it was like 22 pounds of meth it was multiple guns um a lot of the stuff that canine does sets up uh investigations for drug task force to bring down gangs to bring down big time drug trafficking and stuff like that. So I was super proud of that. Um, so there was lots of times that we were proud of it, um, getting getting the big uh, dope cases and stuff down. Um, you know, and then the camaraderie in the canine world is just like the horseshoe and competition world. So that is awesome, man. Yeah, so that, that was kind of me. I do miss, I do miss that, but uh, you know, you have that in the horseshoeing world too. So you're oh, not yeah. on the- like it's, it's- sounds like high drive people in each each one so and you're not on the force now then what are you saying nope so september last year i i had my 10 years in and i said i think it's time for me to go back to my trade and uh, my wife agreed and we decided i bounced and went back to shoeing horses and making tools and making just making stuff i like making stuff so it's uh if it's new and exciting to make i, I kind of get into it but i you know horseshoeing stuff is awesome so i like making the knives i like making the fullers i like making you know whatever i just like making stuff yeah and did you so like you probably knew that you're going to go to that route beforehand before you quit from the force did you set yourself up for it because like i see you got a hawes back there like you got you knew that you yeah. probably had to buy some equipment Yep. to get back into this. So it was like that something you started buying those things before you quit or did you yeah. quit and then just like, man, time to double down? Well, no, well, it was time to double down as soon as I quit, but I, I did do that. So I ended up, so I had one, I had a pretty big shop. Well, not, it's not huge, but I had a shop that was uninsulated. Um, and so I started like, all right, well, I want to have machine room. I want to insulate it. I want to get everything set up so when I quit, then and then I can just go go after it. And so I I um, did an extension onto the shop, and then we ended up putting the machine room where I put the haws and I put a laser and a lathe, and then I insulated the whole shop so I could forge and work in it all winter long. I did that. Took a couple of years to do that, and that made it even harder because you got the uh, you've got the goal in mind you know and and uh, you're setting everything else up to to bounce and and the closer i got it was like oh, i'm so done with this <laughs> oh i bet <laughs> he's ready to leave early he's just like you know oh. what i got my own place here <laughs> i got places to be 
Especially, especially with the ADD mind, you're like, once oh, you get man. something there, you're like, it's ticking nonstop. You're like, you know, I'm not really here right now. I'm over here. <laughs> you know, it, it, what, what really probably set everything in motion was Forge and Fire. Really? I was going to ask yeah. about Oh, that's that. right. Because you, you were on Forge and Fire too, huh? Yeah, I, I ended up being on it like three different times. But it was, yeah, it was Jeez. like, because I saw your episode way before I did it. And yeah, I went and lost, you know. <laughs> went and did bad. Got first loser, second. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So my wife was like, hey, you need to go do this. Because when it came out, I'm like, that's a horseshoeing contest. But you yeah. don't have to put holes in the damn thing. You just got to make a, a pointy thing that's sharp. That's yeah, all no you got to do. No blood involved at all. <laughs> right. So I'm like, I could do that. But I was I was done competing, right? And so when I got out of horseshoeing competitions i was like I, there is no way i'm doing another subjective competition again i'm just not going to do it well that was a lie so i was probably it was like seven years into the into forge and fire before i jumped in and my wife was like you need to do it you need to do it and i'm like all right so i i told her no forever and then i was like okay i'll do it so i did the online application um and then got a uh, phone interview. They liked me there. And then I got the Skype interview. And, and then I was on the show. But what was that, that like? How, being on how did TV? your first time? It was like a horseshoeing competition, except that they were. Uh, so it was exciting. So they took really good care of you. Of course, you got all the cameras and stuff like that on to you. But it was it felt like a competition. So it felt like like the like Calgary or something like that because you it was fun because you're gonna be you knew it was gonna be on TV and stuff like that. But as soon as they said go, it was just like I was back in Calgary. I put my head down and I was like I had done my homework and I just went after it because I, I didn't just go. I called Jim Poor. I called Kathleen or not. Um, uh, sorry, I called Jim Kelly. Poor. Kelly, sorry, and then I called Craig. Um, and Shane, I call all those guys and I said, hey, what do I need to do? What do I need to know? Because I know they want to have drama and stuff like that in there. And they all gave me the skinny on the lighting, the moving the, the glue and stuff around, um, how oh, yeah. the, yeah, how they tell you what you're going to do. And then 45 minutes later, you got to go do it. But it's not, you don't have 45 minutes to think about it. They've got, you know, they're going to, you know, you know, it was, so it was, like this go 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 and then you and then you have to go do it but it was just it was i felt just like it was a horseman competition when they said go that's cool they treated you well they treated us like crap it, was, oh, <laughs> it sounds like you had a way better experience than yeah. me man. <laughs> oh yeah yeah, I had a great experience. They were so nice. <laughs> oh yeah, they were like, I waited at the airport the first time for like an hour before they picked me up, and then they oh, just really? dropped me off in like this crappy Hilton hotel in the ghetto. And they're like, I remember walking down to the the lobby, and I was like, I don't have a charger cord. Is there a store nearby that I can go get one? He's like, Dude, you don't want to be walking around here. He's like, he, he's like, just stay in the hotel. It's like. Okay, <laughs> I guess I'm, my phone's gonna die. Oh, that sucks, man. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, it was weird. God, they took really good care of us. Like it was, 
I, you, I mean, and I, and I spent the whole time messing with the guys' heads and stuff like that. Like before we go, yeah, like I showed up with my my uh, uh, WCB like jacket with the Roadrunner and all the you know oh, yeah. you got all the the stuff on you know. The, <laughs> yeah. So I, I messed with those guys from the very get go on that on that deal, but it was you got their yeah, brain. Really <laughs> did you win all? So three did you? Times? Did you? Yeah. No. So I won the first time. And then the the second time I got second, and then the third time um, I was convinced I was going to win. I ended up getting beat by this kid. I made a mistake on my heat treat, and he uh, he beat me. But they never aired the third the the third one. They I think oh, they uh, they really? I think the program's done. Yeah, because I remember like, seeing you on there twice. That kind of sucks. I know, right? Yeah, so it was only like shown twice, and the, the third one I don't think they'll ever see it. I can't even show, I can't even show the sword that I made on Facebook because we signed that contract. Oh. And it says in there like that you can't show it till after the show's been. Yeah. Aired. There has to yeah. be some type of like, a, like what do they call? What's that called? Like a. You probably know what this word is, like a uh, statue of uh, limitations. Yeah. <laughs> By this point, I'd love to show it, but it was like when, so they were. It was all that COVID stuff at the end of the COVID, and so a lot uh, of the um, so they they made you wear the mask every time the the camera was on you. And I asked later because they they're not they won't communicate with you or anything. You, you, they don't you know. But uh, I asked a couple of guys that were producers because you get, became friends. I became friends with the producer, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, do you think what are they going to do with the show and stuff?" And he's like, "Dude, a big portion of this reality TV that they had the mask, they're just scrapping because it has a bad look." Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it kind of sucks for you, but it like in a way it's kind of cool no one's going to see you get second you know right. but also like it sucks for the kid that won I like know. like it probably was the only time he went to and he was like man i don't oh. even get to like i went and won and i don't even get to show anybody like well he was a younger kid and he was you know they give you that $10,000 and so yeah. he he had a young family and he was so proud, and it, he did he did a good job, and and of course then he doesn't get the win, he doesn't get the promotion, doesn't get the money, doesn't. I was like, oh dude, that sucks, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, they really don't they really don't promote you too much, anyways. Like they don't put your last name on there. They right. don't say your business or anything like that. I mean, it is what they sell to you. They're like, oh, it's gonna be so good for your business. Like right. I only had one knife order ever from that where there, the guy oh, no was kidding. like I saw you on Forge and Fire and I want to buy a knife and he was the biggest pain in the ass customer I've ever had <laughs> <laughs> it was the worst thing ever like the guy, I got the I got the knife all made you know and like I had him choose which scales he wanted on it and then we got done he's like you know I think I did like the darker ones after all and I was like yeah. oh man <laughs> too late bud no. <laughs> like that's too not late. how this works <laughs> oh yeah I know that that making knives for people like custom orders where they they have a say in the whole thing is the biggest pain. I I I would I do not enjoy doing those. I love like I like to make what I want to make and then put it out there and see if somebody wants to buy it. You and know? I think that's so that's how you do all your tools right now, right? Yeah, pretty much. Except for the knives, um, even with the knives, I kind of do that too. But so I just make 
I just make knives. I got a, uh, and then I, I've got cut like the supply houses that buy most of the knives. And so I just make them in whatever handles, but they're all kind of the lefts and rights and the curves and straights. And I sell them that way. And then, so and then they, they, all the other forging tools and tongs and stuff like that, I just make my own. So for those that don't know, where can they go to like find what tools exactly are you selling and where could they go to find them? So I, I make just about anything, um, but um, tongs and punches and fullers and, and hoof knives and stuff like that. And you can get them uh, well shot. Well shot. Well shot. Use code brains and you'll get a free yeah. little gift in your your package there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John. John's a big supporter. And then uh, Oleo Acres. Um, and then there's uh, Hoof House just became, um, you know, and then there's there's other ones too. But then you can go yukonforge.com. You, you can, and I get a lot of custom stuff through there. Like, like hey, man, I need a pair of three-eighths tongs or, or half-inch tongs or bolt tongs or, or whatever, you know. And I thought I saw Is also there... you started a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, so mostly I'm trying to... I, Using that to show, I want to do like tool maintenance, um, how to sharpen a hoof knife, you know, those types of things. So I hired a I hired a marking guys to help me, and that was expensive and went bad. And so yeah. we but we started up the YouTube channel, we started up some other things, but it came way too expensive, um, and so I just kind of slowed down a little bit. But and because it, it it became more of like, all right, we got to get to the goal and like super fast. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of enjoying the journey, so I got to slow, pump the brakes just a little bit. So yeah, yeah. like you're making this unfun, bro. <laughs> you got to you yeah. got to chill. <laughs> yes. That's, is there a tool that you like making the most? Um, gosh, I think I, I like making tongs. Um, so I was always really successful in the tong making at Calgary. Um, and I ended up, consequently, I ended up making a lot of tongs. And I think that's what kind of screwed me in the horseshoe making because I spent most of my time making tongs. But uh, <laughs> I, I made a lot of tongs. Me and Bill was my partner at Calgary, and we made we made a ton of tongs. Um, and, uh, so I, that was, that's probably my favorite is, is making tongs. I, Cause you know, you, you're doing blacksmithing projects. You always need a different pair of tongs for whatever. And, uh, nothing's, nothing's better than when you can make something that can hold your piece and you can forge it. It's kind of like the unsung hero on the weird projects where like you make a weird pair of tongs for like something that you've been doing and you're like, this is the most impressive thing about this, but oh, yeah, nobody yeah. cares about it like, yeah. whatsoever. See it. Or cares, right? <laughs> Except for the guy making the thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's only you that it's like, I oh, man, I know you guys think that's cool, but let me show you the tool that made it. This is the cool <laughs> right, part. Yeah. Like, You're absolutely 100% right about that. You're like, I only make those anymore just so I can use these tongs, just so I can play with these <laughs> things. I have so many different like weird pairs of tongs that you get. I mean, so if we just made this pair of tongs just to make the toe grab, you know, or or whatever. Yes. You know? Oh, that is my favorite part about going to pores, is looking through his crazy tongue racks and stuff. Is it's oh, yeah. like so many weird things that you're like trying to figure out what they hold and what they could be used for. It's like, like it's what great. Were you thinking with this, you know, and some like weird <laughs> contraption of tongs. He's just got tons. Of, I'm like. 
I don't know if I did if I did this another hundred years if I have even close to his tongs that he, that he has now. You know? I'm I'm bad about just making do. <laughs> I'll just like, well, I'll just drop it ten times each time I make it. It's like that's just what I do. <laughs> guilty. I just make, well, yeah, guilty. yeah, just yeah. You just get lazy, right? And you just make do with whatever. Yeah, you get in a or you get yourself like in a bind. You're like, I just got to get done. I don't have time to make tongs right now. I got to keep oh working, dude. And that dude always had something going on in the shop. So. I don't know if we have time for a uh, Jim Poor story. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Okay. So I was at, the con- we were at the convention one year and Jim's like, hey, I am, I'm behind on a bunch of tools. And that's when Sam was working for him. And uh, they were still in Midland and they were like, hey, can you come down and, and help out for a week to get, I just need somebody to grind on tools and stuff. I'm like, all right, yeah. Any chance to go help out Jim and check, you know just whatever i i'm all for it so i ended up i ended up going home with jim like driving back to texas with jim and then uh we ended up there was like a snowstorm or something going on there but that was the time where those airsoft guns had just come out and they Uh, they had all the different types of air and that was the thing like everybody was sniping everybody in, in in the shop right so jim had this jim and kathleen had this routine in the morning where Jim would get up at some ungodly hour to get the shop going, right? So he'd get up, he'd get the machines running, he'd get everything warmed up, and then he would go back to the house and get his coffee or whatever. So I, I think I'd been sniped multiple times, and I'm like, I'm going to get him back. So the there's the one door that opens up from the house. You go, you kind of go down this walkway, and then you go into there. He... I set up one of those fully automatic airsoft guns and I, and I somehow rigged it up. So it was connected to the power hammer. And when you open up the door, I set up a little like wedge on the door. So it opened, but it wouldn't shut. And then I had a string that went all the way around to get to the uh, BB gun. And so I had it set. So once it's set, it would just shoot the entire magazine at him, you know, so, and, and he'd always get up earlier than anyone else. And that night I could barely sleep because I and the, the guest room was just right next door. It was like Christmas so, night. I was. I was just sitting there waiting. I'm like, I can't wait. So he gets up, he finally gets up. Uh I can't remember what time. It was it was it was early. So I hear him walking along and I hear the door open up and I hear, God dang, God damn it, Tyron. And it just started. <laughs> I don't know how long he stood in front of the door, but you couldn't shut the door, right? If you're going to get shot, you're just going to shut the door. Well, then you're sitting there getting shot by that thing as the door is, is shut. But that's that's, oh, one of my, uh, that's good. My, uh, that's a good course. one. <laughs> I, you know, they, got me back. they got me back a lot more than I ever got them, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Home field Jim advantage. had it coming to him. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, man. Well, John, a question we'd like to ask our guest on the show is, we call it the Mount Rushmore, and basically it's four people yeah. that have helped you a lot out a lot through your career, and four people that you look up to and respect and hold into a high regard. So we'd like to know kind of four or five people that you have in a high regard. 
Uh, so I thought about that quite a bit, you know, because there was a lot of people that helped me along the line um, that were always there for me and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, I, I know I talked about Quick and, and our, our uh, love-hate relationship stuff, but that man has done probably more for me um, in my education and becoming a worship. So he had to be number one. Um, and then uh, Jim and Kathleen, uh, Craig, absolutely. Mark Milster. Um, and I could just keep going. Uh, yeah. Austin was a huge help. It always has been. Um, and then uh, I can't forget like Bill Poor and Todd. I know that's more than four, but um, no, that's that's it was good. a village. So, yeah. So, but yeah, uh, those those people do group together pretty easily, right? Like really yeah. easily. Yeah, yeah, one more on there. Do you, do you have one dog when you were in service that you that really stood out? Did you have a, like one favorite dog? Um. So, yeah, I had one dog that. Um, so my, I guess my my first dog. He wasn't really a good like police dog. He was a good dope dog, but he didn't bite people very well. But he was a really good dog. He we ended up retiring him, um, and he's he's home with me now. Um, that's Cairo, um, and he 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 probably he so. He probably kept me out of more trouble than what I got into, and he got he got more bad guys than uh, than uh, probably most dogs. So, we, one, quick real story before I get we we taught him how to bark into the microphone. So <laughs> we would literally we would surround houses, and then we would give our canine calls, and then I would uh-huh. give him his cue to, to to bark, and I'd put the microphone up to his mouth, and he would bark into it. Arr! He'd go nuts. Well, we literally had people thrown out of houses because they were afraid that the dog was coming. Oh my god! Get him out of here. We don't want him. I <laughs> wish we would have known. You, you, he could have, he could have barked into the microphone tonight. That would have been great. Oh, yeah, was, I could probably get him to do it, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Good. Man, that is awesome. Kind of like his war cry. He's giving you right, a chance. Yeah. He's blowing the horn before he went after oh, yeah. you. <laughs> We solved more problems with that dumb dog than you could you can you can shake stick. I got more arrests. So like we probably had two hundred arrests to one bite. Like people just <laughs> gave up. Like and I get it. No one wants to get eaten, right? So they no. So they they're a good tool. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, he can't be that dumb. Just because he didn't want to bite some people, like he, he might have been just smarter than the rest. He's very social. He's safe around my kids, and he's 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 a good dog. So, and that he's is awesome. Now. Yep, that's awesome, man. John, we appreciate it very much for you taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to let us crack into your brain a little bit, man. It's a it was awesome. No problem. I, I really enjoyed it. What you guys are doing is great. Um, just keep it up. Uh, I, I, I love the podcast. I love listening to the guys. And it's just it's it's a good way to learn, but it's also a good way to be stay connected. This is a community, and you guys are killing it. Keep it up. Well, thank Thanks, you. Man. We appreciate it a whole lot. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, John. This commercial and podcast is brought to you by the World Championship Blacksmiths. We're so excited to have the Trinka family support what we're doing here. It is a huge part of the topics that we have on this podcast, and it's where we've gained a lot of community at, and exactly what they are. They are a community that supports education through competition. So if you were looking for a support system behind you on your journey of becoming a better farrier, 
go join up and go to an event. You will never regret it. And they've been nice enough to offer us a 10% off on their online store or call-in orders for everything besides competitions and membership. So go ahead them up, get some merch, and let some people know what you support. Thank you, guys. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a second to tell you about Barrier Box. First of all, we owe Fairy Box a huge thank you for being one of the first ones to jump on and support what we're doing here with the podcast. If you haven't heard about Fairy Box, it's a bi-monthly box that comes to your door and it's filled with goods, kind of like the Chewy Box to your dogs, but this one's not filled with crap. She gets advice from the top guys of the industry and puts together a box with a theme. They aren't just a bunch of random items. They always have something where like a some pieces of bar stock to practice for an upcoming contest with the punch or the fuller that you can use and fits that shoe. It's a great deal. She also throws in items that you wouldn't think of, like good soaps, things to take care of yourself, make your truck smell good. Get on Barrier Box and use code BRAINS at checkout, and you're going to get 25% off your first box. Thanks, everyone. I want to take a moment to tell you guys about Wellshod. And not just that they carry every item you can think of from every brand, including from the little guys. You can get some Adam Farr punches, some Ben Sneer hammers. They pretty much got it all in the hard-to-beat $10 shipping. But I also want to take a moment to talk about John himself. You see the well-shod name at pretty much every single contest that you go to. And not only that, you see John himself there supporting what we do and investing his time. Like John's even jumped in the competition in his ring himself at some of the WCB contests. That speaks huge to me, and it also speaks huge that John wanted to support what we're doing with the podcast. They've agreed that if you guys use Brains at checkout, they're going to put a little mystery item in the box for you. So go ahead and support them, what they're doing, and it helps support us. Because in all, we're all just one community.